Talk to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Curry on Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through 20th, a new and unusual nonprofit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry. Curry on is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and to register, visit www.curry-on.org/2017. If you don't have plans for July and want to learn more about Scala, meet new people, and visit the Polish seaside at the same time, you may be interested in participating in Scala Wave. Scala Wave 2017 is the second edition of annual Scala Conference for the Baltic Sea region. Last year's debut edition proved that the conference is becoming an interesting part of the Scala scene in that region. It is held in beautiful Donks and this year it lasts two days, the 7th and 8th of July. The first day is a workshop day, and during that day, there will be seven workshops and an open-source hackathon held. The second day consists of ten presentations, all focused on topics related to Scala programming. Tickets are now available, so make sure to visit scalawave.io to find out more and to register. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using Clojure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. MustConf is a nonprofit open space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open and you can find out more at www.push-conf.org. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets tend to go fast. PWL Conf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation, and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. OpenFSharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, OpenFSharp features two days of FSharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the FSharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the FSharp ecosystem. Visit openfsharp.org for more information and to register. Lambda World is back taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are available, and the early bird discount ends September 1st or until the first 100 tickets sell out. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. 
Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. The call for talks is open, and they are accepting talks until the 13th of June. They are looking for talks that showcase how technologies and programming languages outside of the mainstream are used to solve real-world software problems. Their motto is a simple one, the right tool for the job. This year, the tracks will be themed on the following. Concurrency, multi-core and parallelism, infrastructure and distribution, the history and philosophy of computer science, deep learning and AI, and language tracks. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed to give keynotes. Very early word ticket sales will start on June 22nd, and I have been told they tend to go very fast. More details can be found at www.codemesh.io. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Colin Beard. Colin, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi. Yeah, nice to meet everybody. I got my start working on a little program called Adium, which some people might remember. It was a chat client for Mac OS X back in the early days of the Mac. And since then, I've been doing a bunch of different stuff. I worked at Apple for a while, worked at Mozilla for a while. I was a consultant for a while. I've been doing a bunch of functional stuff lately. And... Yeah, I'm just, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'm just interested in programming. And you got on my radar from some Twitter action and saw you were doing some functional Swift. So I wanted to get in and talk about functional Swift, but you've got some other experience, so we'll all tie it in together. So you got started with ADM. What was that progress that put that on the radar and got you to start programming and start picking that up and playing with it? Yeah, so I was in school at the time, and I had been taking some classes in kind of computer science or, you know, even just like more general kind of computer use type classes. And I really, really dug computers, was really into it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Some of my older friends and stuff at school were taking the classes too. And honestly, it just kind of came through actually being a user of Adium at the time and like chatting with the other users and the developers of it and just kind of getting involved in the community. And I was like, you know, I could give this programming thing a shot. Why not? Like, I'll figure it out. How hard can it be? And obviously it was a little bit harder than I thought and always no good for the first, you know, a little bit. But, you know, after a year or two, I I was able to make some pretty good contributions to ADM. And over the five or so years that I was working on it, I kind of touched pretty much every part of the uh, code base. I worked on low-level things with libpurple and all that stuff. I worked on the UI. It was a great educational opportunity to really just work with a bunch of other kids my age. That was mostly who it was, other students, and just learn and collaborate and have fun. And we had a couple million users by the end of it where I left. And then I think it's kind of receded now from that just since 
protocols involved have, you know, not, not a lot of AIM users these days. People have all kind of moved on to more proprietary uh, and locked down social networks. And if you come into ADM, I'm guessing that's Objective-C as it's a Mac app, or was there some other languages that were involved that got you going in on that as far as what the first languages you were exposed to were? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was Objective-C. I also, in school, we were learning C++. And then I had had a little bit of experience playing with HyperCard, also from school. But that was that was when I was a little bit younger. And it was more like, you know, hey, here's a giant if statement to like throw up some dialogue boxes or here's an animating button or stuff like that. But it was still like powerful in the, hey, here's what computers can do kind of way. Although I don't really know if any of that really transferred over to what I ended up doing. But yeah, Objective-C, C, and, you know, some C++ and stuff like that. And so you spent, I think you said, five years on ADM? Yeah. In that time, what happened next? You went in, you did your Objective-C. I know you've got some Haskell background. You talked about, in the priest call setup stuff, we were going back and forth. You talked about some prologue, maybe some standard ML slash OCaml. What was that transition that took you from doing Objective-C and maybe some C++ to broadening out and looking at a bunch of different languages. And what was that evolution like between picking up this language or that language? Yeah, great question. I think for me, I had always had an interest in learning about like wider programming, the wider field of programming languages and like what else was out there. Just because I, I think especially when you're like first getting on your feet and oriented in the computer sphere, it can be very... I don't know, it could be kind of overwhelming. It seems like there's a lot of programming languages with a lot of different utility and stuff like that. And it's hard to know what's good for what. So I definitely remembered learning a lot about that stuff, just kind of reading sort of what is OCaml? What is Haskell? I remember this was before Rails existed. I remember I learned about Ruby because I was reading through, I can't remember what package manager it was. Maybe it was the FreeBSD one, but I was just like, browsing through their packages and was like, oh, what's this Ruby folder? What is that? And I just, you know, like looked it up. And so I saw somebody, uh, we ended up becoming friends later on, but I saw someone speak at a conference about how to make programming languages. And he had an experience working on Mac Ruby, which was a Ruby runtime that Apple had been working on. So it was at a Mac developers conference and i thought it was super cool and so i uh ended up kind of trying to figure out okay how can i like get into working on programming languages or like playing around with them or whatever and so from that that kind of lit the fire in me to learn about this stuff and i ended up playing around with a bunch of languages and ended up doing some work on haskell with my friend his his name's patrick thompson and he and i worked on a extension of one of his school projects, I think it was his senior thesis for undergrad. And it, it's actually online. It's, you can check it out on his GitHub, Patrick T slash Bracer. And it, it's a C source translator. So it's kind of like the JavaScript Babel thing, but for C. And I learned a ton about functional programming and Haskell through struggling through to try to read some of the papers that you, you know, find in the Haskell haddocks <laughs> linked, you know, uh, trying to figure those out and just kind of struggling through the basics. I didn't finish my degree or anything, so there's definitely a bunch of gaps in my knowledge. So it was great to try to fill some of those in. 
And yeah, once I got into Haskell, I was really kind of hooked. I had just a great experience working with it. I thought the people that I encountered were really nice and friendly. I mean, I've since encountered people who are, you know, not. <laughs> but at the time, when I was beginning, I, I met a lot of really great people who I really had a lot of fun collaborating with and you know asking questions and just learning and doing stuff. And I think from there, I kind of was just like, at the time, I was doing a lot of consulting. I didn't really have a steady job. So I had a, you know, some free time to kind of play around with uh, a bunch of different languages and built some toy projects and stuff. So it was really, I guess, just kind of curiosity, interest-based. And with that curiosity, I know it sometimes goes a couple of routes. And you may or may not remember, but what led you to decide to pick up a bunch of different languages and see what was out there versus the go deep and try and understand better the way Objective-C works and where that came from and just go down the C lineage and go a little deeper? Because some people go with the fundamentals of a language and get that really understood, whether or not it's technically deep on the language, but know the history versus know the go deep on the language versus go spread out. Do you remember what prompted you that said, I'm going to look at other languages versus just go deeper on this Objective-C stuff that helped get you down the route to playing with Haskell with your friend from college? Yeah, I think that's just kind of my personality in general. I'm definitely somebody who prefers to kind of scope out just a bunch of different choices and stuff. If I'm comparison shopping, that kind of thing, that's just kind of the way I generally tend to approach things and learning. I just tend to have a kind of a broad, at the expense of deep attitude. But I think, too, I had also kind of, on the other hand, hit bottom with Objective-C, I think. And I'd been working in that for a number of years at that point. And I felt like I kind of had been playing around with that. And I guess I was doing real work in it, really. Uh, and then I had learned Python at that point as well. I felt like I wanted to kind of pick up what else was out there. And I think one of the things that inspired me to pick up a bunch of different languages was this book, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks or something like that. And I really found it quite enjoyable, although I've gone back and looked at it, and it's I'm not 100% sure, sure I would. I think it might be out of print, or it's not up to date, so I don't know if I'd recommend going back to that exact book, but there's got to be similar ones out there these days. So I guess I was really just kind of motivated to see what was out there, just kind of by personality and circumstance, I'd say. And it's always interesting to hear what causes people to jump out and look broader because some people like that i know this and it's comfortable and it's always interesting to hear those things that cause people to look out because whether it's for you and you're not looking out too much or you know people to be able to give that prompt of say hey maybe if you take a look at this it can give you some other insights and what sparks it across everybody so you start playing with Haskell, and you said that's when you started to get hooked. You kind of saw some ML stuff, OCaml stuff, and you saw it, but you didn't really get it, but you started playing with Haskell. What was that process of Haskell? Because I've heard people have all kinds of different responses to Haskell. Usually people either get it real quick and they're like, oh, this is comfortable to me, it makes sense, or it's, oh, all of a sudden I'm hit the monads or whatever else, and I've somehow started on the complicated side of Haskell. Where was that falling for you when you were getting exposed to Haskell? And was that something that came around pretty quickly or it took you a while to dig in, but you had 
your cohort you were working with on this project that said, here, let me guide you so it wasn't too bad. What was that experience like? Yeah, yeah, good question. I think that you're right that people have a kind of come at Haskell from a bunch of different angles. And depending on the exact angle you come at it from, you can either, you know, <laughs> kind of bounce off or kind of get hooked. So I think for me, I definitely had an experience where I was, it clicked pretty quickly for me and I was really into it. I think part of what that was, was that I went through this book, Real World Haskell by Brian O'Sullivan. And what I did was I copied it out by hand, you know, not on paper, but into a text editor. But I actually typed it out just by looking at the book, all the like source listings and code examples. And I think that really helped, I guess, get over the syntax barrier right at first, which I think is what a lot of people have trouble with. And so I, I wasn't struggling with the syntax as much, which made it easier to wrangle the more difficult concepts like you're talking about, like, you know, monads and applicatives and traversable and stuff. But, you know, it, it definitely I didn't get it all right away. It came one at a time <laughs> for sure. You know, you know, I got functors and then, you know, I understood fold definitely came one thing after another. But uh, I re really recommend that book. It's really quite good. I think it's like up to date. Or there's comments or something on it where you can find, you know, updated listings. So it's got a pretty good introductory kind of course to the first couple chapters of taking you through stuff. And there's a project that's maybe it's like the fourth chapter. You're building like a little barcode recognizer. And it, I just thought it was a really cool project. I felt like if I had been doing that in Objective-C or in C, it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> and I was really impressed by how clean and organized and easy to understand the code was. And it was in a domain, you know, image processing that I didn't really know anything about. And the fact that I could see these sort of fundamental structures, you know, functional programming, like mapping and folding and all that stuff showing up in another domain, I think was a big part of what got me hooked. And seeing the sort of not just the Haskell part of it, but the functional programming part and how that can be kind of a unifying and clarifying way of looking at problems, I think started to click for me then. And I think that was part of what kept me going. And that functional side, was that clicking because you'd seen Python and some of these other things and you kind of see that I recognize these things because I've seen it elsewhere or I've written this for loop and I understand eventually that this kind of for loop is a filter and then this kind of for loop is a map and this kind of for loop is a reduce. And was it that kind of stuff that you kind of saw and equated that said, hey, now I can take this back, whether or not I'm doing Haskell and moving into Haskell or just letting those learnings influence what I'm doing day to day and in my work and whatever I'm not just playing with Haskell around. So the first part, which is kind of about how did I start to recognize those things? I definitely think learning Python and, you know, Objective-C had added like blocks and stuff like that. So I feel like that side of it definitely helped. And I had kind of like you're suggesting kind of the pattern recognition kicking in there. And, you know, I'd used Python map, Python list comprehensions. I'd used other sort of higher order constructs in Objective-C and stuff like that. So that definitely was helping so that I could see the unique part of it. The sort of the like, oh, it's not just 
this is a more convenient way to write a for loop, but it's that you factor the part that goes inside the for loop out into its own function, and then you can kind of glue them together. Or you factor out the part that goes into reduce, and then that makes that part easier to read and reason about, which that aspect of it, the factoring, was new. And so as to the second part, what I took back from Haskell and that stuff and how I felt like that influenced my coding, I definitely feel like and this is maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but like over time, I definitely feel like after a while, I kind of got into this weird kind of uncanny valley a little bit where I was comfortable writing stuff at Haskell enough that it was part of my thought process, but I didn't really have the full understanding necessary to bring that back into something like Objective-C in an idiomatic way. So I definitely remember one work project where I tried to sort of write a little like algebraic data type type thing in Objective-C with a little, I guess I call them now, introducers or eliminators. And it wasn't that good. <laughs> it was kind of bad. And I, I feel bad for my coworkers who had to maintain that. I hear they ripped it all out, which is good for them. Luckily, it was just in one little isolated corner of things, but it was definitely overkill for what it needed to do. And I think that's, I think that's good and bad. Uh, it's great to be trying new things and to learn and to push yourself and try experiments. But obviously, you know, it, it can sometimes backfire. But what's that saying? If you're uh, not screwing up, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. <laughs> and that leads me into you get into this uncanny valley. And eventually you come out and you start doing Swift. You start doing functional Swift on top of that. You've got some FRP, functional reactive programming experience. I'm not sure if that's falling under the Objective-C or Swift, but in the exchange of the show notes and getting stuff ready for topics, you talk about this. You get into this uncanny valley. You make some of these mistakes. You get some of these insights. What was that evolution that kind of pushed you down until you could finally say, hey, now I've got something that I can actually do functional Swift and make that transition. And what did that path look like as you continued to progress down? Because you eventually came out of the Uncanny Valley. So what was that lead out of the valley for you? I think the real impetus for really getting deep into this stuff was that I had a very tough challenge at work. And we ended up needing to build something that looked a lot like an FRP system. And that's how I kind of got into a lot of that stuff was just we had this challenge that we had to figure out how to do. And I was <laughs> I had been made responsible for helping to figure it out. So I started doing a lot of reading about other systems that did this. I can't talk too much about the details because it was while well, I was at Apple, unfortunately. Unfortunate that I can't talk about it. Not unfortunate that I was at Apple. I had a great time there. So anyway, the project, I was working on it with a bunch of other people and I ended up reading a lot about and playing around with a lot of the other FRP systems that are out there, read a lot of theoretical papers about how this stuff's supposed to work, especially uh, Conal Elliott's work, which he's the guy who sort of kicked off the whole subfield. And from that, I really, that is when it re a lot of it really started to gel and like just getting deeper into the literature and reading and getting past blog posts and documentation <laughs> and getting into the real meat of what a lot of these abstractions, monoids or arrows or these sorts of things, you know, what they're really like about and why they are the way they are. And then right around the middle of that project, 
Swift came out, and I had a great time getting to play with the early versions of Swift. And obviously, it was kind of a rocky start to the language, but that's it was in beta and everything like that, so it was all good. But it was it was definitely a lot of fun playing around with it, and I think it was kind of a right place, right time thing. You know, like I was at Apple, I had a lot of functional experience. And I was able to kind of work with the other people I was working with, really kind of push this functional angle. And I think the work that we did is not public, but it lives on. And, you know, maybe someday some iteration of it <laughs> will get out in public and I can talk about it a little bit more. But uh, actually, actually, part of the uh, descendant of what I was working on showed up in the uh, Swift evolution list recently with key path lens proposal that got sent out by, uh, I think, Itai Farber. I hope I got his name right. And he was one of the colleagues of mine that I worked with at Apple. David Smith and Andy Matushak were to the others and Jacob Shaw. And we had a, had a great time working on stuff. So shout outs to all them. And I look forward to all that stuff, making it out into the wild someday. So yeah, I guess it was just kind of the fire of the crucible, you know, really forging me that way, you know, just having this big project to work on and being trusted to figure it out and make it happen. And you said you started getting in, you started digging into all the research. Swift came out. What was the timeline on seeing how that applied to the objective C and when Swift started coming out and you started taking a look at it, what was some of those differences and kind of things that put that on the radar and seeing because I've seen things like Swift Z library based off the Scala right. Z stuff and all that. So apparently Swift is a lot nicer to do this stuff with than Objective-C because I've seen a lot of stuff tangentially around it about people trying to apply it. In your mind, what was that thing that kind of helped shift you down that route that said, first I'm playing with this and now I can apply this and wow, there's everything I did in Objective-C I've got that applied to Swift now. And for you, what was that evolution? I think for a long time, and I think until really Swift 3, Swift was still just, for me at least, more of something that I like played around with. And I don't really think until it was recently that I actually got the chance to really sit down with Swift and write, recently meaning the last year or so, that I got to sit down and write a full app and dig into how to build production quality software in Swift. And so at first, it was a lot of just imagining kind of the promise of the language and what I thought you'd be able to do with sort of a ML style language on top of the Objective-C runtime, you know, and having algebraic data types and having parametric polymorphisms and, you know, a lot of these ML style constructs available. You know, at first in Swift, that stuff wasn't really there fully. You couldn't have recursive enums. There were just a number of bootstrapping sort of holes where they just hadn't really kind of got the details worked out yet, which is, you know, I think it's fine. And I think they've made a lot of really awesome progress over the last few years. So I guess, yeah, for me at first, it was really just sort of Swift really lit up our imagination in terms of what was possible rather than what was in your question about getting in there and like building stuff with it and then seeing that kind of come back to the objective c side it was more of whoa like here's all these new capabilities that we'll have someday soon <laughs> when we're all ready in swift but for now we're going back to objective c and what might that look like if it, it wasn't swift 
But over the past year, I've actually had the chance to write a bunch of Swift and write it in a functional style. And it's been, it's great. I'm really happy with it. And I think that the Swift 4 has a lot of really great changes. And I think that as Swift keeps going, I, I think it has a really bright future. I think that there's a lot of really great work being done. And it's, it took Scala a long time to blow up. I remember I first heard about Scala probably eight, ten years ago from at a conference or something, and it was at that time extremely new and did a lot less than it does today. And so I think that, you know, Swift, Swift will get there. It takes a long time to really build all the stuff that people need in a general purpose programming language. So it's still a baby language, <laughs> but it'll get there. And what are some of those things that you're finding now that you've played with Swift? And I'm thinking if you've done Objective-C, you can start to apply the functional ideas, whether or not it's Uncanny Valley or you don't even go that far. But say, I'm going to make these parts of my functions pure. I'm going to try and do some immutability if I can get away with it or at least act like it's immutability. I can take some of these ideas, and especially if you fold in functional reactive programming, which there's reactive cocoa and some of these other things, right? You get some of the stuff in Objective C. It's not, yeah, it's not an ideal world, but you can start to apply these things as you go deeper into Swift. What are some of those things you mentioned? The algebraic data types and some of these other things that are fantasies, but in your mind, what is that power of Swift? Because you hear about sure. the ideal of Swift, but where it is today, if you're working in Swift, what does it look like compared to making that Objective-C and actually having the more functional power and maybe a fuller ML-style track to get there? Yeah, great question, great question. I think the areas where Swift really, I guess, has a kind of a higher power-to-weight ratio you know, than Objective-C is just defining and building out abstractions in Swift than it is Objective-C. Objective-C, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of syntactic overhead that you have to deal with. You've got header files, you've got implementation files. It's like C++. You've got a lot of just boilerplate. You just got to like barf out before you can really get stuff up and running. And Swift, like ML, is a lot more compact. And I think that getting good at using parametric polymorphism and higher order functions that sort of thing is really going to like speed you on your way and make both writing the code faster and also reading the code easier. Because for me, I really like to think about separating out what to do from how to do it. And Swift makes that really easy. I can write a function that takes some sort of description of the commands to execute or, you know, UI updates to perform or the new state of this component. And then I can just sort of only read from that in one place. And then in other places, I can only write to it or only sort of create commands and then send them along to something else, which, you know, maybe translates between two types or does some validation or something. And I think just being able to kind of separate out those two bits of describing what to do from actually doing it. I think that sort of thing is really powerful and is really where Swift right now makes it. It's just a huge advantage over Objective-C. And I think as Swift gets more power in terms of the generic system gets fleshed out and it's easier to write generic code, as some of these restrictions in terms of what sort of stuff shows up to the tools, for instance, 
You can't use the generic class with interface builder right now, stuff like that. Maybe that's not exactly correct, but there's some restrictions on what will show up in some of the other tools because they're all still hooking into the Objective-C runtime rather than into like anything to do with Swift. So I think that stuff will it'll only get better from here, I think. And hopefully you'll be able to define more generic components. And I think of it like you want to aim for writing kind of N plus M rather than N times M, where, you know, N and M are kind of like two different axes of what your program needs to do. So instead of writing 16 different controls, you might write four generic control classes with four different control descriptor objects. And then, you know, you can mix and match any one of those with any one of those. And so then you you save half the code, <laughs> hopefully. And then you mentioned Swift 3 started to be the mature one for these features that you were talking about, in your opinion. Swift 4 is looking really nice. You also kind of compared it to the Haskell and MLs and saying it kind of falls into this thing. And if my understanding of Swift is correct, it uses LVM as a compiler. So in theory, it means Swift could run elsewhere and use in different manners, assuming someone gets the right libraries targeted for those other platforms. So you could theoretically just run Swift programs on Linux by using an LLVM compiler. That's right. So in this worldview of where you see it going, what you've looked at with 4 and its maturity, where does it fall compared to a Haskell or ML-based language for something that you just want to put on a server and have it run as an executable in your view in relation to the power it gives you versus the familiarity trade-off of things like Haskell and ML where you might be able to do Swift and convince that in a work group that says we can adopt Swift and get some of this power versus trying to make the cell of Haskell OCaml. In your view of working in this and taking the functional aspects of Swift, if someone wants to introduce and move the team down this route, how do you find Swift compared to Haskell and ML for some of that, even if it's not there today? Right. I think Swift is kind of going to end up falling into a similar niche as where we're seeing kind of rust starting to fall in that it might not be, uh, you know, who knows, but I feel like we're probably not going to see the mega popular web framework of tomorrow be written in Rust. And I don't think that we'll see that for Swift either. I might be wrong, but I feel like that we will start to see these sorts of languages because they have good C interoperability and whatnot. I think we'll start to see them being used. And I think you're already starting to see people do this with Rust as like a kind of extension language for some of the more popular dynamic languages and people writing components of their app in these other languages. So I think that's one area that you're going to see. So that, okay, you have some performance-sensitive thing or you have some lower-level thing you need to do and Swift has a lot of, and is going to get a lot of this similar focus on, you know, memory-correct operations and working and tracking low-level resources automatically within the type system, stuff like that. So I think that's one area in which you'll start to see these things be pretty popular. Another area where I think that it's not for nothing that Swift is something that is a language that a lot of 
mobile developers are learning, you know, and that people, there's a lot of people writing mobile apps. And I think the fact that folks are getting exposed to these languages and ideas and same, you know, you got Kotlin, which is, again, you know, it's not ML and it's not Haskell, but they're definitely in the orbit of that style of language. And I think the fact that we're starting to see for the first time in a while, sort of what the cutting edge of what's happening in academia or one area of academia anyway, and the cutting edge of what's going on in industry are really starting to kind of align in a way that during the heyday of dynamic languages and OOP and all that stuff, there was a bit more of a split brain kind of thing going on there. And, you know, that's not to say people weren't doing good research on Java and on any of that stuff, not at all. But I think, in fact, one of my professors in Maryland, where I went for a little while, was wrote fine bugs. So I think there's just a really good one metaphor I use a lot is rowing in the same direction kind of feel right now that I have. And I think that that's going to um, <laughs> I think that's going to be really great for everybody in that we're all kind of finally starting to speak the same language when it comes to functional stuff. And I think we're all kind of starting to agree a little bit maybe about what trade-offs in language design make sense how to start to write reliable software, because I think that's really the crisis that our industry is really facing and our field, really, not just the industry, but how do we write software that doesn't go wrong? And well, <laughs> anybody who's read Philip Wadler or Simon Peyton Jones paper knows that well-typed programs don't go wrong. <laughs> that's the slogan, right? So I think we can hopefully find a solution to one of the biggest problems facing our field right now in reliability and security and maintainability and preventing <laughs> these horrible ransomware attacks that are happening through uh obviously it's going to be a multi-pronged effort but you know i think good solid language design will be a big help and it's great to see that we're all kind of getting on the same page there now instead of everybody jumping from one <laughs> one dynamic language to the next <laughs> python to ruby to perl to javascript it was definitely, that was always very frustrating to me as a somebody who's getting into functional programming hard to see all these different and cool, interesting dynamic languages getting picked up, but none of the functional ones. And we're coming up on time, but I want to save some time just if there was anything else that you thought of or any topics that you want to make sure we at least make mention to before we start to wrap up the call. There's a few more questions to ask, but I wanted to slot some time for anything that you think we should make mention to before we start to wrap up the episode. No, nothing. I think we got everything. Okay. So one of the other questions I want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up is, do you have any advice or recommendations for people who are doing Swift, interested in functional programming, that might be the libraries, tools, frameworks to start to introduce? that can start moving their Swift down the more functional route and getting that ideas exposed to their coworkers without scaring them off because they break into the uncanny valley that you mentioned with your Objective-C stuff. So do you have any recommendations for helping people introduce more functional Swift into their applications? That's a great question. I think the ecosystem is still a little bit new. And so people are still settling in on like what the right sets of libraries are. And obviously there's a lot of activity on the Swift evolution list and things are getting added and stuff like that. But I would say check out the Kickstarter libraries. There's a Kickstarter prelude 
that's pretty good. There's a couple of the things that they've got on their GitHub that are really great. And they have a bunch of, I think their whole app is actually open source. So they've got a lot of really great stuff there. I've been to two of the functional Swift conferences that, that uh, Brandon over at Kickstarter has organized along with Chris Eidhoff. And those have been really great. So the videos for all those are up online, including a oh, talk from me. So those are great places to start. But I think honestly, like it's best to go to the classics. I would recommend checking out any of the classic Philip Wadler papers, theorems for free, or his recent sort of survey one about types as propositions. And of course, if you don't mind not using types, then there's always SIGP, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs by Sussman and Abelson. And that's a great book. I've read that one a bunch of times, and that was definitely a big a big one that helped click things for me. I think, yeah, I think that's basically what I would recommend. Check out Kickstarter stuff, and then just try to find old, older classic computer science texts to look at. Because the older stuff often it has a different way of looking at things, a different perspective, because a lot of these ideas were newer or the context in which they were writing was different. And I think that especially if it's an idea that you're struggling with, getting it in a different context can really help kind of illuminate the object in a different way, taking that analogy literally, casting another light on it. And I think that going back in time and looking at people, what people were saying earlier really helped me anyway with a number of things. And just for clarification, that Kickstarter is Kickstarter, their crowdfunding company, right? Yeah, they've got their mobile app open source. They've got a bunch of open source libraries that they use to build the app open sourced up on their on their GitHub. So definitely check that out. And you mentioned the past couple of functional Swift conferences, but I don't know if there's one coming up already scheduled or if it just happened, but... Yeah, it just happened. Are there any other conference appearances that you're going to be making, either as a presenter or as an attendee, that people should know about? If you're going to be upcoming, anything else you want to let people know, any projects you're involved with that you want to make sure people know about or recommend to people? Well, I guess I got two things. Well, three. The one I just thought of is that uh, I'm going to be going to the Compose conference, but that's later this week. So by the time this episode's out, People won't be able to do anything about that except watch the videos. But I'll just be there as an attendee. So, you know, if I've... English doesn't have a way to <laughs> talk about these sorts of uh, future simultaneously in the past kind of thing. So, you know, I'll see you there if I see you. If not, you know, I'll uh, catch you at the next one. But uh, I like the Compose Conference here in New York. Uh, that's a good one. I think there are some videos maybe from that from past years. We haven't announced anything yet. But Brandon from Kickstarter, Brandon Williams, and I were talking about after the Functional Swift conference happened earlier this spring, a starting a uh, functional front end meetup here in New York. I think we're going to look at trying to do the first one of those sometime after WWDC in June. And the idea with that is, you know, this is all still very early stage, but uh, I think I can hype it up a little bit. The idea is that we want to kind of bring together people working on Android, people working on iOS, people working on in JavaScript who are doing functional programming that are working with user interfaces in some capacity. And there's a lot of functional programming and interest 
from more of the like, you know, I guess you would call it back end side, you know, people who are happy to talk about Kafka and Mongo and Kubernetes and like all these sorts of, you know, back end technologies that people on the front end maybe aren't so familiar with and have trouble understanding how it's related to uh, what they do. And also, so one on the comprehension side, and then two also on just the learning side, I think there's a lot of open problems, a lot of kind of practical applied things that are kind of annoying. And that kind of I think a lot of people are all struggling to solve on their own. And I think getting a bunch of people together for like a meetup and you know, we want to keep it kind of casual with like us and kind of, you know, panel discussion or just kind of an open Q&A or something like that, or just a, you know, lightning talks or something. I think getting together the community of people would be really cool because when I was at the, at the functional Swift conference, they asked who's from New York city and who flew in. And, uh, a lot of the hands were people from New York city. And I was like, we should get this community together more often than just once a year. So I think Brandon and I are going to try and make that happen. No details on when exactly yet or where, but once things get a little bit closer, I'm sure if you check out my Twitter or his Twitter, you can find that out. The other thing I wanted to plug is I have a Patreon set up and that's, uh, I'm posting, it's like three bucks a month. And then I post a weekly kind of roundup of stuff I did that was interesting, things I found online, just kind of a, uh, I guess you can kind of call it a newsletter or something like that, but it's just a bunch of kind of where I put up any projects or scraps that I'm working on kind of in one place. And most of the money that I get from that, I give back to other Patreons and you can, that's all, you can see all that on the Patreon page. So it's mostly just about kind of trying to centralize everything in one place and, you know, kind of try to build again, you know, kind of a community of people and stuff. And then since you just mentioned your Patreon page, you mentioned Twitter, are there any other places that people should follow you online or are those the primary places to keep up to date for what's going on? Those are the two places. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. If you really hate me, you can go get me on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, those are the two places. But if you're on Facebook and not on Twitter, I'm on Facebook too. I post stuff on there too. Okay. And we'll get those added to the show notes so people can come back and track you down as well. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Colin, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and nice to get a good view of more functional Swift. I've played with Swift occasionally at work, touching a mobile app, getting in and working in it when I need to. But without that real deep dive, I know those ideas are out there, but it was a pleasure hearing more about it and getting some more details about some functional Swift and even more functional style Objective-C. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.